for some people, they say, man, that's, that's dangerous, David. You're building your worldview and your life on the eyewitness testimony of people 2,000 years ago. Um, but the reality is we're all building our lives on something that somebody else has said. I want to be my current self from this point forward. I want to learn how to play piano. Working with human beings. Drinking wine in the middle of the day. I want to be a I'm going to be the next greatest painter. Just kind of work with kids, getting them ahead in life. I want to be a welder. I want to be a beach bum. I want to be a baseball player. Brewmaster. A winemaker. Professional snuggler. Let me mention those sweet, hot lavender baths and writing in the evening. What's up, everybody? This is Blake Fletcher, the Half Hour Intern. Today's episode is the first half in a two-part episode. The second part will be coming out this coming Thursday. Um, The episode is all about being a pastor. So our guest is David Massey, and he is one of the cooler people that I've ever had the pleasure of talking about religion and spirituality with. Um, David and I hold completely different views with regard to religion and spirituality, but David is just such an amazingly cool dude, and and we were able to carry a over a two-hour-long conversation on these topics, even though him and I don't agree with each other, and everything was done in a very civil, fun, um, discussion-oriented way um, that I hope you guys will like. In the first half of this first episode, though, we actually talk a lot about being a pastor and what that's like and kind of the inner workings of the church and uh, and all that kind of stuff. And uh, then the second half, we'll get into more of the religion and philosophy. So without further ado, here is Pastor. David, thanks so much for coming on the show, man. Hey, yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So why don't we start at the very beginning and you tell us at what age you started considering, like really seriously considering becoming a pastor. Yeah, I was probably between 16 and 17. Um, I I grew up in church and I absolutely hated it. And so if you had told me as a a young kid that I'd grow up to be a pastor someday, I would have laughed at you definitely. Um, (laughs) Yeah. I was very convinced and maybe partially still am that I'd fly fighter jets someday. And so uh, the the shift from military to ministry was, was different. Uh, not that I'm opposed to military stuff now. I just, there was this sense in which I felt like God was calling me as a teenager to become a pastor and to share the message of Jesus with others. And that, that message had shaken me and, and compelled me. Um, to a point where I just thought, man, I want I want everybody I know to to know about this. Interesting. And did you grow up? At how you said that you weren't really liking church when you were a kid? Did you grow up as a non denominational Christian, or were you a, like a specific branch when you were a kid? Yeah, no. As a kid, we grew up in the Methodist church, so it was formal, that mainline, um, very liturgically styled church service. Okay. And nowadays, like what you're doing now, is that is that. Did I even call that properly? Do like do people just call that non-denominational Christian or just like Christianity or does it have a, a more of a formal name? Yeah, no, non-denominational is sort of the standard term used for any of the non-mainline churches. So I'm a pastor at a non-denominational church. Okay, cool. Um, so we'll we'll talk a little bit more later about kind of like the rise in popularity of non-denominational churches and the plummeting fall in popularity for whatever reason of of what you were calling mainline um religious churches uh but let's talk more about you first so uh what uh, i i saw i saw on the the page for the church that you're at right now that you received a master first you went to school for uh what did you, what did you get your bachelor's in again uh in theology right right 
And then after that, you got your master's in divinity, which is something I never even heard of before. So how did you hear about that? And what is the curriculum like for a master's of divinity? Yeah, I mean, in, in college, uh, the, the bachelor's degree was, was pretty rigorous. It was a lot of fun, um, but it was foundational. It was sort of a, um, the building blocks for what would later become the scaffolding of a, a more thorough theological education. And in talking with some of my professors in college, they, they had all said, you need to go to seminary and get a, a master's degree, uh, a, preferably a master's of divinity. And so I kind of asked them, you know, what is that? And they had explained it's a it's a more thorough theological degree that will prepare you um, more effectively for long term ministry. And it's got Bible, it's got um, stuff on missions, it has stuff on philosophy, a little bit of apologetics, uh, thorough biblical languages. So you need to learn Greek, you need to learn Hebrew. And they kind of walked me through this. I said, you need to have these classes. And I thought, man, that seems like so much work. Uh, I just I just feel called to you know teach the Bible and what's why all the work? And they said, look, if you want to stand in front of a group of people someday and, and open the Bible and say to those people, hey, this is what God says to you, um, y- you better know what you're talking about, David. And I went, oh, yeah, that, <laughs> that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, for sure. What uh, What's apologetics? You mentioned that as one of the things that you learned. Yeah, apologetics is, uh, it comes from the Greek word apologia, which just means simple like defense of. Um, so making a defense of the the reasons for the things you believe. Oh, whoa, interesting. Mm-hmm. All right, so you're well prepared for a lot of the discussion points that, that for later. This is ah, uh, dude, I'm so I mean, I'm, I'm not like a, so happy to talk to you, David. You have no idea. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. I'm not a thorough um like Christian apologist, but I mean, I I do have reasons for the things I believe. So okay, cool, perfect, man. Um, so what are the different types of pastors, types of career paths that you can have as a pastor? Like if someone was thinking about getting into this, what are the different the different avenues that, that the average person wouldn't know about? Yeah, I mean, in non-denominational circles, there are um, any number of roles, um, and it depends largely on the size of the church. If, if, a, if a pastor is in charge of a smaller congregation, say about 120 people or less, um, he's kind of the main guy and he's probably going to be one of the only, at least, um, salaried pastors there. But in a larger church, you can have your lead pastor who does most of the preaching and teaching. You can have your, um, like music pastor who will head up all of the music and kind of the, the formulation of how the service is going to operate. Um, there's guys that are charged with pastoral care, which is a lot of counseling and discipleship. Um, helping people through maybe marital problems or if they have depression or just any number of things that people need to talk and have someone to listen to. Hmm. Uh, there's a com- communities pastor or something like that where they they deal with um, getting people plugged into the church community through small groups or Bible studies or different outreach opportunities. That's my primary role, by the way, as a communities pastor. Okay. I'm not like I'm not like the lead guy. I, I preach once in a while. In fact, I'm preaching on Sunday, but um, I, I, my primary role is more dealing with people day to day. Um, so, and then there's, you know, there's probably youth pastors who deal with like, okay, we're going to, um, host a Wednesday night service for, uh, young kids 13 to 17 or whatever. Sometimes there's college pastors. If, if the church has a, a large kind of college age population. So, um, a pastoral role role can be almost as diversified as the, the needs of the, of the specific church community. 
So yeah, you just mentioned a lot of different pastors. Like how big would your church have to be to kind of require that that number? Yeah, um, I mean, with all of those that I mentioned, probably nine hundred or more. It it would be a pretty sizable church. Okay, and so I wanted to ask, like, what you do all day as a pastor with your particular role of a like a communities coordinator type of person? I. I, it's like endless. I can only imagine the number of things that you have to do every single day. But if you're the regular pastor, um, you know, that gives the sermon every single Sunday, what are you doing during the rest of the week? Uh, you know, like, obviously, you got to prepare your sermon for, for that upcoming week. Uh, like, what else are you doing? Yeah, so uh, my lead pastor, he spins a lot of plates. Um, uh, I I do not envy his job. <laughs> he, he puts a lot of work in week, week to week. He probably spends 15 hours just working on the sermon um, because you, in that portion, you've got to pour over the biblical text. Um, you need to internalize it. You need to um, have some of the questions that might pop up answered, at least in, in your own mind, to be able to walk people through. But then in addition to that, he's, he's doing things like uh, meeting with people, having conversations, uh, coffee or breakfast or, or whatever. Um, helping facilitate any kind of staff oversight. So uh, we we meet together on Mondays and Wednesdays to talk about, hey, what do we need to be preparing for as far as maybe a Bible study class coming up or um, a marriage seminar, any number of things like that. He's kind of overall leading the bigger picture stuff. Um, additionally, he is a, like like myself, he's also a teacher on the side at a, at a local uh, university. So he, he wears quite a few hats Hmm. most, but, but if I were to summarize it, Blake, I'd say most of it deals with just spending time with people. Um, pastors are in some ways like a, like a a public access. People need to be able to call or email or text their pastor and say, Hey, I've got this going on. I'd really benefit from talking with you. Do you have a, do you have an hour? And, and if the week is appropriate, then it goes, yeah, yeah, I can do that. Yeah, interesting. It's a lot like a really high-level politician or something like that. It can feel that way at times, but it's really deeply personal. Mm-hmm. Um, it's uh, it's it's I I enjoy it quite a bit. Um, just because I'm super extroverted by nature, so spending time with people is is fun for me. It it energizes me. Yeah, that's great, man. What hours do you do you all end up working then? I, I imagine some of your weeks can kind of get away from you if you're at the beck and call of the, the people in your church. Yeah, if you're not careful and you don't sort of put boundaries up, uh, you can you can easily do 65 hours. Um, but if, if you are mindful of, I need to devote this amount of time to work and this amount of time to personal stuff, then it can... A, a, a healthy balance can be maintained. Um, I usually do about 40, probably 40 hours a week with another 15. So I'm also a professor at a local school and um, that takes probably 15 hours a week. Uh, so I'd say on average, my weeks are 55, but it doesn't feel like work. And that's, what's great because I'm doing what I love. I'm doing what I feel like it, to, to use the the sort of church language um, I, I feel like I'm doing what God's called me to do. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's beautiful, man. That's awesome. So how do you get a job working for the church? I I imagine it's it's probably a pretty, uh, there's got to be like quite a bit of competition for these jobs. 
Yeah, it depends on the church. Um, with my experience, I just started attending this church with no intention of coming on staff there. Um, I just I liked the the way they operated as a church, and I, I liked what they had to say. And so I just got involved at a small level, serving in different ways by you know helping um, take out the trash or help manage the parking lot. Sometimes it can get kind of crazy. There's kids running around. Um, I just became a part of the community essentially. And then over time I started to think, man, this is a great place. I, I like the leadership here. They know me, they trust me. Um, I respect them a lot. And so I just sat down with the lead pastor and said, Hey, I'd like to have a conversation about potentially stepping into any kind of leadership role. I, I don't mean to invite myself to a party, but I'm, I'm wondering if I can do that. And, and he said, yeah, you know, we, we'll, we'll talk about it. So he talked to his senior leader. Um, my church is part of a bigger network of churches. And so it was, uh, it was not just a localized decision, but it was a bigger picture conversation that started taking place. And all these other guys were kind of speaking into it saying, yeah, we know David, we trust David. Uh, we think that that could be a good fit. So, um, that was what that looked like for me. Different churches operate differently though. Denominations appoint uh, their pastors through different processes. Um, some denominations require a master's of divinity, others do not. And so I, I couldn't I couldn't speak um, comprehensively to all of the different ways pastors find that niche, but it usually starts with a calling from God and a conversation with the leaders. Okay, and then in terms of actually getting hired and um and deciding also like what pay structure is like for all the different pastors at the church is like the lead pastor at the church kind of like a ceo or do most churches like kind of lean in favor of almost having a separate like board of directors that is a little bit disconnected from the situation that's going to decide how much people are getting paid and you know who can come on and stuff like that yeah, the typically um, there's a sort of board of directors. Most times churches will call them a board of elders, um, and elders isn't a isn't a reference to their age, as though they are elderly. Elders comes from the Greek word presbyteros, which simply means overseer. And so there's a board of overseers at most churches, denominational or non-denominational, and those those elders are disconnected financially from the church. They usually um, are in some other vocation, they're a, um, a fireman or a lawyer or um, a school teacher, you know, any number of things. And they sit as a presiding board to say, okay, what is in the best interest of the church here? What's our vision? Does this, um, does this pastor meet the qualifications of what a pastor should be? And if so, then um, what is his uh, experience level? What is his education level? And then what can we pay him based on that? So, um, really, if you were to ask my lead pastor and my boss, his name's Frank, if you were to ask Frank if he's the, the boss of the church, he'd say, no, the elders are. Um, so he ultimately answers to them, and uh, they keep him in check. So in a way, he does function like a CEO in the sense that um, he helps cast vision and lead the church just as far as uh, goals, mission and vision goals go. Um, but he's not the... He's not the CEO in the sense of uh, um, he's the one that controls and determines his own salary. Okay, interesting. And mm -hmm. so, do uh, will priests get like I shouldn't say priest? I'm sorry. Will pastors get um, like 
a yearly raise or like you mentioned about how long someone's been in the job for um, and kind of what someone's qualifications are like what what would you be looking at getting paid right now you know it, you just if you could just give us like a ballpark and then what could somebody be looking at getting paid when they've been already been a pastor for 20 years hmm. that's a good question um there's so many variables that go into that um but typically <laughs> typically people that go into ministry aren't looking to to make decent money um that's not to say that pastors can't survive and live. Um, they do. And it's, I think the Bible speaks to that, talks about paying uh, an honorable wage to a laborer, um, even a laborer in ministry. So typically a, a pastor will make enough to support his family, whatever that family is. So um, I, I, I can say, like, I know that I get paid less than some of the other pastoral staff, not because I'm less of a worker or, or less valuable to their team, but simply because I'm a single guy, um, I, I don't have a family. And so it's not as, uh, it's not as pressing, but also, um, I, I perform a newer role. I'm the lower guy on the totem pole and the church budget isn't at a place where they could potentially pay me on the same level as a lead pastor because, um, the budget doesn't allow it. We don't have those kinds of incoming resources. Right. Right. The resources do come from the congregation. So um, we, we base our budget off of basically the giving that, that people make. And so we don't do, if you grew up in church, you were probably familiar with, they pass around a little plate or a bucket and people put money in it. Yeah. Uh, we don't do that. We have ways for people to, to give online if they want, or they can just drop uh, a check or an envelope in the back in these little boxes that we have. And then that money gets collected every week and gets deposited to the bank. Copies are made and sent to our senior leadership, which is out in Gilbert, Arizona. So I'm in Phoenix. Our senior leadership's out in Gilbert. And uh, that budget is handled by uh, their elders and our elders who um, help ensure that, okay, we've got some money that's helping out with new church getting started or outreach or different things. So um, it's a big it's a big animal for sure. Yeah, that's crazy, man. So then I imagine the church also obviously has to employ lots of other people like a regular business. Like you guys have to have, I would imagine, like several accountants and a finance person and probably like mm -hmm. a marketer and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. We've got a media and communications guy. Um, we have people in accounting. Uh, most of those roles are filled by the bigger picture network rather than... Uh, our local Phoenix congregation. Um, but it's, it's a, it, it does have um, a lot of work that goes into it, which I think is good and valuable because it creates a lot of accountability. There are in, in a way, in a sense, eyes making sure that money isn't kind of trickling off here or there. You know what I mean? Yeah, definitely. How many hours a week are you spending on the premises of the church? Uh, we're in a unique spot right now geographically because we're, we are renting from, um, another church who doesn't allow us to use their offices cause we're not renting those offices. We just rent their sanctuary. Huh. And, and so I don't spend a ton of time actually at the church building. Most of my time is spent in coffee shops, uh, or in homes or just different places where I'm having conversations with people. Eventually we're going to move to some new property in May. And we'll have offices there, and that'll allow us to spend more time there. But 
but even then our goal is is not to get too um comfortable and built into our walls but we want to be connecting with people of the community and so we do that by spending time in communal places like coffee shops or restaurants yeah for sure when you are going out to coffee shops and restaurants to meet with different parishioners are you given uh, do you have like a like a corporate credit card like are, are you having to buy your own coffee when you know somebody from the the parish calls you up and says hey like i'd really like to talk to you if you could meet up with me at this coffee shop is that money having to come out of your pocket or are, are you able to like charge that you know to the house account yeah, no, there's a, there's a house account that, uh, in fact, I need to start my reimbursement because it's the first of the month, <laughs> um, Jan, January ended. So I, I use a certain credit card of my own and I go on there and it's, um, you just print up your bank statement essentially and send it to them with all of the receipts and they track that and they go, okay. And then they send you a reimbursement. So cool, man. I mean, occasionally there's, yeah, there's times where it's like, this is sort of, this is sort of work. But it's also sort of personal because these are my friends and these are the people that I like being with. And so um, there are times when it's not like, oh, I'm just going to charge this to the church. There are times when it's like, no, I'm really more hanging out here than I am doing ministry, um, it, which is an interesting line to, to balance because I enjoy both of them so much. Yeah, definitely, man. That's interesting. Well, I, it sounds like you're probably the right guy to make that decision. Your, uh, your church is lucky to have you. Um, all right, David, let's get into uh, some of the more like philosophical, spiritual, interesting religious talk here. So sure. um, I, how, how have your beliefs and your belief systems changed in the past like 10 or so years? I, one of the things that's always struck me about um, being, being a pastor is it, it leaves so little wiggle room for, I, I would imagine like changes in your faith Um like where I stand with my faith and my ideas uh, of spirituality and stuff has changed so much in the past 10 to 15 years and changed several times in major ways. Um, have you had any major changes in the, in the past like 10 to 15 years in, in your belief systems? Yeah, it's a, that's a good question. Um, I would, I would want to, I'd want to kind of, analyze different portions of my life uh to do that so it's a deeply personal question as it is also philosophical and theological but um i'd say in general my, my beliefs haven't changed a whole lot but the way that i express those beliefs has changed so i'm a pretty like type a black and white kind of guy um and historically that's not helped me r relationally uh just i don't mean romantically but just uh, in general I've been sort of, this is the way it is, and you should understand this because this is the way it is. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, I definitely and, know what you mean. And when I was in my younger 20s, that wasn't helpful. I realized that that didn't create to um, healthy dialogue. Uh, and so I had to kind of reevaluate, how, how is it that I articulate my beliefs? Um, how do I express them with, with grace and with tact, uh, with love, but also with truth and standing on, hey, this is this is the conviction that I have based off of this authority, which is, of course, rooted in the Bible. So um, my beliefs have, have, I think, developed. I think I had a simple faith 10 years ago. I didn't know a whole lot about the Bible. I didn't know sort of why I believed what I believed. Um, but as I, as I studied and as I poured over the scriptures, I realized more and more that this, um, this faith tradition of Christianity 
was more than just conceptual ideas or or philosophical notions, but was um, was rooted in history, uh, the history of the the Jewish people, and the culmination of uh, their expectation of a Messiah in the first century. And that helped me really kind of ground some of what I had always assumed uh, into reality. And that was helpful because I started to realize, oh, okay, um, this this gives me a foundation and I don't have to feel like if someone's questioning my foundation that they're questioning me personally. Yeah, absolutely, man. Absolutely. Yeah, it's, that, that's, I think, such an important part of maturing and getting older is uh, is that exact realization. You know, not just with... Not just with regard to your spiritual life, but re- with regard to life in general, you know. Yeah, yeah. It sounds I like think... you and I were very similar people when we were when we were younger, because I, <laughs> I would be the exact same way. But I've uh, I've softened up a lot because I I tend to take the stance that uh, like none of us know what we're talking about, including me. So I'm not going to like try and act like I have all the answers, you know. Yeah, I think I think uh, when you get in conversations about spirituality, you you must exhibit a certain measure of humility to acknowledge that um, if this God exists and we are having conversations about him, um, he is infinite and we are finite. And that requires us to kind of go take a step back and go, I could be wrong, um, but my confidence is that I'm not because of, you know, different things. Um, however, even if I'm confident that God is real and true, that doesn't mean that uh, I should treat others as, as less, essentially. Yeah, absolutely, man. So have you ever had a a major crisis of faith? So just again, a little bit about me. I used to be, I grew up um, very Catholic and I was even a, uh, a confirmation teacher after I got confirmed. So I would lead different retreats. I led a, a class in my house for a while um, for people that were going to get confirmed. And then uh, some, sometime when I was in college, it just all kind of started to fade away as I got more and more interested in science and philosophy and stuff like that. So it was this kind of gradual but very real crisis of faith that I had, and it it got to the point where I could never go back to to Catholicism or even Christianity again, unfortunately. And I, you know, I would love it if one day I. <laughs> I uh, I become faithful again um, because I think there's so many benefits to to having a faith that you really believe in. Um, but I find it I find it difficult to uh, to subscribe to to anything one way or the other. You know, like the more the more that I've opened my eyes to everyone's beliefs around the world, the more that I'm like, ah, oh, crud. Like I guess, I, like I said earlier, I, I, I guess I have no idea what's going on. Do you? Have you ever had moments like that where you're like, do I really know what's going on here? Um, like, do we really got it figured out? Oh, certainly. Um, I'd be I'd be foolish to to not have doubts. I think faith faith demands a certain level of doubt. Um, so I've I've definitely had moments, um, but I I'd, I couldn't say that I've had long seasons of of crises of of faith. Uh, I've um, had different points where I go. Man, is this is this really it? Am I am I, have I really got this? And uh, those moments give me pause, and I think they're good. I think they're formative um, and and ultimately helpful. Um, but I can't say that I've stayed there for a very long time, um, not because of my self will to just ch- you know force my mind to believe something that's not true. But uh, there is this deep sense of God at work in my life that I just can't shake, and 
that's something that I perceive as supernatural. And uh, with that being the case, um, n- no, no kind of n- natural doubts would come along and, and completely uproot that, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely, man. It's interesting. I, I was actually in, as you and I do this interview, we're for the half hour intern show in the middle of a two part episode that I did with a guy by the name of Michael Gorgian. And we ended up talking about a lot of philosophy and spirituality and stuff during his mm. episode. And something that he mentioned, which is just so true, is and he, he shares a lot of the same uh, like spiritual views that I do. Um, but he was just saying, he's like, I, I think it's kind of telling and interesting that that there there just is this longing in everyone. It's like there's this hole there that you could call like the need for spirituality or spirit or connectedness to something beyond yourself, you know? And it's it's something that everyone feels. <laughs> like everyone, even people that are atheists it's like they're they're trying to fill that hole with atheism or something you know it's like there is there is something there that's missing um and i yeah in that regard i think it's very easy to when you're having a uh, a crisis of faith of some kind to to gra- grab back on to whatever feels uh familiar to you or to what you know to what you to what you do believe in because th- there is this legitimate hole that needs to be filled within every one of us mm-hmm yeah, we do. We we long for uh, the transcendent, right? Yeah, yeah, that's a beautiful way to put it. Absolutely. There's a. Are, are you a fan of Thrice at all? Yeah, absolutely, man. Man, Dustin Kensrue has, in my mind, been one of the most brilliant uh, songwriters in that maybe I've I've ever encountered because of the the variety that he writes. I mean, he he writes about his faith, but he also writes about Greek mythology and marriage and just all kinds of different things. Um. But he, he has a song called Treading Paper that talks about that. And he says, if anything means anything, there must be something meant for us to be. A song that we were made to sing, uh, there must be so much more than we can see. And he kind of goes on and contrasts uh, bleak atheism with um, the, the longing of each human heart to fill it with something transcendent. And he talks about, he, he kind of he actually quotes Bertrand Russell, at least paraphrases the philosopher Bertrand Russell. Um, talking about how if we're just accidental um, atoms sort of beating together in the air, if we're just carrying on and unwitting orphans of unyielding despair, then then what um, what more is there? And then he says, but our hearts tell a different story. Our hands feel a different pulse. And it's a really interesting song. It's off, it's off their newest record um, that came out in 2011. But- Man, that's beautiful. I it, Yeah, he really hits the nail on the head there. The thing that it, I guess is difficult... For me, and probably for a lot of people, except for a hardcore atheist, which I find to be, you know, just as crazy as anything else, is like I just because it like so I absolutely um, subscribe to the idea that there is something bigger than us and that there is like something at play here in this universe that connects us and that uh, like when I when I met my wife within moments of of meeting her, I, I connected to her so, so, so strongly in a way mm. 
that it's like as if my spirit, my soul was like high-fiving her soul, you know, um, as we were just meeting. And I think anybody can notice that. Like when you walk into a room and you meet someone, within like 30 seconds of meeting somebody, you can, you'll already be sitting like, man, this person's just so cool. And then like, I totally gel with this person. And you look at that empirically and it's like, well, you've been talking to them for 30 seconds. Like, how do you know how cool this person is or how much you're going to continue to get along with them? But anytime I've made that snap judgment about somebody, like, wow, this is just a really cool person right here. Hmm. Sure enough, we go on to have this like beautiful, long friendship, you know, it never turns out to be wrong. And I feel like more than anything else in the world, like that, that is proof of a soul and like that is proof of a spirit you know is yeah. that there is this yeah. underlying part of you that you can't see that's almost communicating with this underlying part of this other person that being said just because we have a soul and just because that there is this this longing within us and there are these interconnected things in in the world like does that mean that there is is proof of god uh, or, or like, or any particular religion's view, you know, does that, does that longing and does that feeling and do, do these other things being true then mean that, that Jesus was the son of God? Does that then mean that Hinduism is correct? Does that then mean that Buddhism is right on? Like, I don't know. Yeah, no, I, I would, I would say no. And any good Buddhist or Hindu or, or any other uh, re- religious person would say the general uh, spiritual impulses that we feel throughout our lives, they don't point to the truthfulness or non-truthfulness of any particular religious worldview. But um, it does point to the the general religious truth that there is something transcendent for which we long. Absolutely. So, yeah. So then for no. you, why, why, why? So have you ever tried to study other faiths of the world? Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Um I have uh, I have friends of other faiths that I try to spend regular t- or semi regular time with. Um, I've got a, a friend here in he he's actually an ASU student, international student from um, uh, Oman, the country of Oman, which is right off the Persian Gulf, and he's a Muslim, and so I, I get together with him from time to time and learn about his culture, learn about just where he's from, what did he enjoy doing when he lived in Oman. Um, have you usually have a, a a meal with him, a kosher meal and it's fun to kind of get to ask him questions. What does the Quran mean to you and these kinds of things? So that's an interesting experience. I, I have some Mormon friends that live out in a kind of Fountain Hills area and uh, they'll have me over from dinner from time to time and they just love to talk about religion. And so I ask them all kinds of questions. They ask me questions. Um, that's the best way I've found to... That's so funny. That's awesome, man. Yeah, yeah, it's good. Experientially is is the, in my opinion, some of the best ways to learn about other religions because you you're sitting with someone who holds that view. You're not just reading an encyclopedia that's maybe written by a, a secularist. Uh, not that that's bad, but um, a lot of times encyclopedias are written by people who don't hold the worldview that they're describing. And so uh, it's good for it's good for me to be able to sit down with those actual individuals and say, what is it that you believe and wh- why? Like, tell me how that works, you know? Yeah, absolutely. So when you when you start to have these conversations with other people... I'm surprised that that has ne- that that's never led to a bigger crisis of faith for you. That you then uh, like, I guess it, it's hard for me to wrap my head around what a um, like a modern, really educated Christian person 
think like like believes exactly at this point so like for you personally like do you think that you you basically have it right i mean would that be is that safe to say like that you think that that christianity has it correct yeah yeah i'd be i'd be dishonest to um what i claim to believe if i didn't have some sort of measured certainty so yeah i do believe that christianity is the the one true religion essentially and and that's common to all real religious adherents from any perspective so my friend my muslim friend in tempe um he would say that islam is the one true religion and uh mormons are interesting they're they're a they're a bit different in that they think that mormonism is the one true way but they would also say that i am a follower of god just of a different flavor um and i i I usually you know gently push back on that and i say no we're, we're we're not like of the same flavor we're very different we use the same language christians and mormons use the same language but we mean very different things by them and so that's an important distinction but any buddhist hindu uh atheist um any religious or non-religious person would all say if they're if they're faithful and true to what that worldview teaches they would say this is the one right way you know that man all right so this is this is like so 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 interesting to me so if so you feel that you have it right so then you feel that that this young man from oman that you go and get lunch with who's now your friend then then he has it wrong and that he is mistakenly believing this thing for his entire life yeah yeah i mean i I, i'm not gonna beat around the bush and say well no he has it you know yeah i do and in the same way that he thinks that i have it wrong don't you don't you i mean can't you just look and understand though that the entire reason that it is the way that it is is because you grew up in america and he grew up in oman and if you grew up in oman then you would be believing what he believed or is your is your faith such that you believe that if you grew up in Oman, that somehow you would have found Christianity anyways, or God would have found you and he like would not let you be a Muslim? Yeah, no, that's, that's a, a good question. That's probably one of the bigger faith questions that I struggle with is, okay, I was, I was born in America, which uh, has been historically somewhat largely Protestant in, in their general cultural beliefs. And then my friend Mahmoud in Tempe, he grew up in Oman, and which is a Muslim nation. Um, how is it that um, I, I grew up matching sort of the faith tradition that a lot of people before me had in my country, and he, and he the same? Um, I think it's important to note that generally um, people will believe what's around them. That doesn't th- make that belief necessarily true or false, though. So, um, let me say it this way. Christianity has its roots in all sorts of different countries. Um, it's, it's spreading rapidly through South America and China right now, which is kind of interesting to, to note that China being a closed country. Anyway, um, Christianity claims to be the, the one way and Islam claims to be the one way and and yet people in different cultures around the world who grew up in a predominantly uh, Muslim culture have found Christianity, have, have, have found that Jesus is, is in fact the way, the truth, and the life. Um, and, and, the, and the contrary is also true. There are people who have grown up in Christian contexts who have later then converted to Islam or uh, out, out of Christianity altogether into some sort of atheistic view. So 
Um, culture is not necessarily a determiner of beliefs, but it is a shaper and influencer of it. And so um, that doesn't mean the culture is therefore morally good or bad necessarily, but it does, it does mean that, um, that they're different. Yeah. Well, I mean, right now, your where you're growing up does, isn't going to necessarily 100% shape that. But obviously, several hundred years ago, where you grew up would 100% shape that. I mean, unless some missionary came into your town or, uh, you know, God just shone his light upon you and told you about Christianity one night while you were sleeping, you're not going to find out about Christianity if you're growing up in Iran. You know, that's just not going to happen. But we live well, in a very fortunate time where you can, where we have the internet and you can, you know, you can read about things and you hear about things. Yeah, yeah, no. Information does spread more quickly because of technology. Um, but it, it is, it has been true that uh, missionaries have shown up to um, what we'd call unreached groups, people that haven't maybe heard the gospel yet. And missionaries have shown up and said, hey, we're, we're, we're here to, you know, more or less tell you about Jesus. And the, the, they're, certain people groups to say, we know about Jesus. Uh, he appeared to us in a vision at night and um, we've been, we've been longing for more information about him. And so we were told that, that there would be more information and missionaries show up and they've got, Hey, here's this, here's the Bible in, in your language kind of thing. So that stuff does happen. Some people of course uh, disbelieve the, the credentials of some instance like that, but uh, at least within my worldview, I, I do have to acknowledge that if the supernatural exists, then something like that can can happen. Doesn't mean it always happens, but it certainly can. Yeah. All right. So let's talk a little bit more about that, about the world of the supernatural and the world of the uh, like miracles that happen within Christianity, and I, I guess just an overall belief in the Bible. So it, the, the, there used to be miracles that would happen so 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 regularly it would seem like around the time of jesus and and you know just before jesus like a lot of the stuff in the old testament and that seems to have basically gone away um for the most part that being said i am sure right now if i were to do a google search on second coming of jesus that there's probably a hundred different people minimum in the world that are claiming <laughs> that they're the second coming of jesus right now yeah and I would have to imagine, particularly like if you were to look at every story in the Bible that we or that, that Christian people believe as, as true, and I, well, and that's another interesting point that we should talk about later. Is uh, I, I think there's a lot of Christians that don't necessarily believe in the things that are in the Bible, but they believe in the but they believe they believe in the more overlying idea that there is a God and that there is heaven and stuff like that. But so. <laughs> If in the Bible we are to believe that that there is a virgin named Mary that has a husband named Joseph and that they have this baby from immaculate conception, I wonder how many girls, young girls right now that grow up in conservative families that are pregnant are telling their parents that they never slept with anyone, that this is just an immaculate conception. Yeah. <laughs> Yet this story is believed and told over and over again for all of eternity. Like, you know, the story of Mary actually being a virgin. Mm -hmm. and, and like back then, people were much, would, would believe something like that, you know? Or back then, you, you tell someone that you are the, the son of God and you do some miraculous things or you are an incredibly miraculous person. Like, 
like the Buddha. The Buddha was an incredibly miraculous person um, and was so in touch with the, the universe and, and the world. Like, does that mean that he is God? I don't know. Does that mean that Jesus is God? I don't know. Um, and anyways, I guess, what are your thoughts on on why is it that we believe these things you know, that are written in the Bible that happened thousands of years ago when we could not see them and verify them for ourselves. And yet when people today are coming out and saying these same things, we choose not to believe them. Yeah, no, that's, that's a good question. There's a number of components that go into answering that. So I'll, I'll try to kind of break them apart. Uh, I think first it's, it's important to kind of note that the things that we find unbelievable about the Bible today were equally as unbelievable to the people uh, in the culture in which they were happening. So if we were to just rewind to Jesus's time in, in the first century, um, the, the claim that Mary was a virgin was totally ridiculous. Yeah. Oh, sure. Sure. Yeah. You guys didn't do the dirty, huh? Right. Um, and that's why if you look at the, if, if you look at the record, the historical record in Luke, um, Joseph wanted to quietly divorce Mary because he was embarrassed. There was, there was shame there. Um, he, he thought certainly he knew himself. I have not yet had intercourse with her. So she must've had intercourse with somebody else. And that, that brought shame to his name. So he was set on quietly divorcing her. Um, he ended up not doing that. And I think the, the, the family of Jesus, um, was, was probably ridiculed in different ways in the, in the Jewish community of the time. And as Jesus grew up and then really started to enter into what we would call his public ministry at about age 30, um, he was not taken seriously by, by the people at large and by the, especially by the religious elites, what we would call the Pharisees. And so they said, you know, no, who, who are you? Like Jesus from the town of Nazareth? Like you're, that's like saying you're from Casa Grande somewhere in, you know, some, some little tiny town in, in Arizona. I'm trying to think of a, a funny town to make fun of. Uh, <laughs> no, Casa Grande's yeah. perfect. If anyone's sure, sure. it's great. Yeah. And it's no offense to people from Casa Grande. It's like saying, oh, you're from like Havasu City. What have you ever done? You know what I mean? That kind of thing. So um, I, I, should, I should make fun of my own hometown, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> um, so Jesus wasn't taken seriously because he was deemed as this inferior sort of uh, riffraff. And uh, he spent time with riffraff, and you see that all throughout the gospel accounts where he um, is spending time with poor people, with people that are deemed as sinners and as inferior tax collectors, who were tax collectors were considered traitors because of the Roman Empire and the rule that they had established over Palestine at the time. Um, so he's spending time with all these people, and then he starts performing miracles, and people are like, no way, like that can't, that can't be for real. But he started doing more and more of those things, and people started to think, whoa, maybe this guy is the Messiah, the, the anointed one that we have waited for for so long. Maybe he's going to free us from Roman captivity and restore the world to its, its good state, the, 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 the place that it should be without pain and sickness and death. And as Jesus continued to do those miracles, people had to, they had to choose between two options. They could either acknowledge those miracles as real and as legitimate, point, pointing to the one true God, or they could reject them and say, he must be a demon. And they did. They, they regularly said, Jesus does not perform these miracles by the works of, of Yahweh, the, the one true God, but through Beelzebul, through um, demons. And that eventually, his, his miraculous works and his claims to be God, that eventually got him killed. 
And so the ultimate miracle around which Christianity hangs is the, is the resurrection of, of Jesus from the dead. So um, some of those little miracles along the way, turning water into wine, walking on water, those kinds of things, they stand out because they seem theatrical to us. But the big one that if it didn't happen, Christianity is a complete sham is the resurrection. And that's where Christians sort of build their camp. They say, we think the resurrection actually happened because there were hundreds of eyewitnesses who gave testimony to this and who eventually were later changed. Uh, Their world was turned upside down. Initially, you had these disciples who were scared and hiding and didn't, (laughs) didn't want to be associated with Jesus, right? Peter denies knowing him three times. And, uh, and then when they get the news that Jesus is alive, they still don't believe it. And they say, I want to see it. And then when they see it, they go, holy crap, this is the real deal. And so their lives as disciples, and I'm not just talking, when I say the disciples, I don't mean just the 12, the, the, the dirty dozen, but <laughs> disciple, uh, disciple means fo- It's the Greek word mathetes, which means follower. So the followers or the learners of Jesus, um, they couldn't keep their mouths shut. They just, they started spreading this news. Jesus is alive. And all authority belongs to him. And we want everyone to know about the good news that he's restoring the earth and the kingdom of God is present and the kingdom of God is going to be in full eventually. And we want all people everywhere to know this news and to trust him. And uh, as that news started to spread in the first century, the, um, the political leaders and the, the higher religious elites tried to silence it. But interestingly enough, it just couldn't be silenced. Um, that doesn't demonstrate the truthfulness of the claims that the fact that it couldn't be silenced, but it does say something powerful about the 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 transformation of the lives of these people yeah, that went from absolutely mm, we're following this Jewish peasant who did a few tricky things to now a guy that we're saying is God Himself. It's crazy. It, it's totally crazy, right? Like I, I'll acknowledge that, but there are, and this is to to come back to why sort of why do you believe some of the Bible is true. Um, there are good historical reasons that are rooted in, I think, strong pieces of evidence that point to the resurrection being an actual reality, not just a made-up story. Hmm. Interesting. Like such as? So if you read the accounts, you've got, um, you've got this guy, for example, his name is Joseph, and he's from Arimathea. Uh, Joseph is not uh, Joseph like Jesus' dad. But he's a member of the high council, the, the Jewish council that rallied for Jesus's crucifixion. And he's the one that goes to the Roman governor and requests the body. He says, hey, I want to bury Jesus, give him an honorable burial, which was interesting because none of the disciples did that. It was this Jewish leader who um, was part of that council and, and had acknowledged, oh, this guy really is God. And so I want to honor him, give him a nice burial. So he does that. If you were making up a story, if let's say... You and I, Blake, we're, fought, we're part of the Dirty Dozen, the early followers of Jesus, and we're scared because our rabbi leader has just died. He's just been murdered on a cross. Um, we're scared because we were associated with him. We think we're going to die now, so we're hiding. If we were making up a story about Jesus coming back from the dead when he, in fact, didn't, we wouldn't have included Joseph from Arimathea in that narrative because anybody could have gone to him and said, hey... <laughs> Uh, is that, is that accurate? Like, did you really bury Jesus? And Joseph would have said, yeah, my, you know, my tomb is here. He was a, Joseph of Arimathea was a sort of a public individual. So his, the location of his tomb wouldn't have been unknown. Um, but 
the fact is is that the the tomb then somehow became empty and people were not able to demonstrate where that body had gone um back to the point about if we were making up the story we would say we did it like oh yeah blake and i went um and looked at the tomb and jesus had risen and oh look at what heroes we are you you know what i mean additionally absolutely one, one of the interesting things that has sort of stumped scholars in a similar theme is that the first witnesses of the resurrection, the first people to see the risen Jesus were women. Um, it was, it was uh, Mary Magdalene, they think, and uh, Mary and, the, and, the, and another woman named Mary. And they went, they went and told the disciples, Jesus is alive. And some of the disciples didn't believe it. And I think that's a curious addition to the, the narrative, because again, if we were making up a story about Jesus coming back from the dead, we would not have included women as the primary witnesses because women were largely regarded as second class citizens in the first century. Yeah. They, their, their testimony just wasn't reliable. And so, um, you would have written it off as, well, who's going to believe that, you know, like that's not legitimate. And so, but they kept, it kept the women in the narrative so as to say, this is how the events actually transpired. Um, so those are kind of two examples. Paul also, uh, Paul had said something to the effect to the Corinthian church in, in the the 15th chapter of first Corinthians. He said that there are, um, there were hundreds of witnesses who saw the resurrected Jesus. And he says, if you don't believe what I'm telling you, go and ask them that they, they saw it themselves. So it's not as though it was just a handful of people in an obscure desert village, but it was hundreds of people who saw the resurrected Christ and then thousands and thousands of more who had experienced his miracles when he was still alive. So that's kind of the big one for me that I I keep going back to and I can't get away from. I go, Jesus really is alive, not because I myself have seen him, um, but because there are good reasons to believe that he is alive. And for some people, they say, man, that's, that's dangerous, David. You're building your worldview and your life on the eyewitness testimony of people 2,000 years ago. Um, but the reality is we're all building our lives on something that somebody else has said. <laughs> oh, man. That was, uh, that was the greatest thing that anyone has ever said, what you just said. That is so true, David. I love that you, I love that you say that. Yeah. I mean, I, I try to be fair with my, my, my worldview. I, I don't want to say with uh, arrogant certainty that um, everybody else is wrong because they believed other people. I just, I have to acknowledge we've all believed certain people, right? Hey everyone, it's Blake. I hope you all enjoyed the first half of the pastor episode with David. Hopefully I asked some of the questions that you yourself would have wanted to ask to a pastor, but maybe you've been a little bit too scared to ask. You didn't want to come across as rude. Or maybe you just didn't want to have to go to church or whatever it was. Um, There'll be plenty more of that sort of discussion in part two, which again will be coming out on Thursday. Thanks so much for listening to the show.